as John 15. And I'm going to read just verses 1 to 8. Do I need to click something to get a PowerPoint going, or is it... Oh, let's go back one. There we go. Great. John 15, verses 1 to 8. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. That resonates strongly with what Chris was sharing with us earlier about God's fatherly care towards us, that uh, sometimes it's painful. The fact that we are pruned and experience loss is not a sign that God has abandoned us. God remains a loving father at all times, and in his love also prunes and disciplines us. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. It means there's been a bit of pruning that's gone on already because of the words that Jesus has said. And so in verse 4, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone doesn't remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you may bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And Jesus goes on teaching, and there's actually, even in those first eight verses huge richness of content. As I prepared for this morning, uh, I was reminded of another scripture. We'll jump past, well, we'll come back to that in a second. I was reminded of another scripture, and this picture will immediately remind some of you of the scripture that came to mind. It's in James 1, where James writes, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word and does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at it, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. So going back to these verses in John's Gospel, the main point of this picture of Jesus as the vine and us as the branches is really simple. It's that we need to be connected to him. That's the main point. There are other things in those few verses about judgment and how that applies to Christians 
as well as to non-Christians. There's teaching in there about intercession and prayers being answered. But the main point that Jesus comes back to and underlines a whole number of different ways is this, that we have to remain in him. We have to connect to him. And as I approach this morning, my overriding concern, and I believe the Lord's concern for us, was that we could note that in passing, that it matters to connect to him, and then move on to talk about some theology of prayer or judgment or other things that Jesus goes on to say in this this chapter, and be like people who've looked at something, oh, that's very interesting, I need to connect to the Lord, and move on. So what we're actually going to do this morning is pause and stick on that point and explore it a little bit together. What is it that gets in the way of us connecting with God? And what are some of the practical, positive things that we can do just to connect to him? G.K. Chesterton, the author, uh, said this, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. Let me say that again. Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. And despite being an immensely simple thing and something that comes entirely from the love the grace of God that we've, had, that we've been reminded of so much this morning, this connection with God turns out to be a little bit difficult for us in practice. And the danger is that we stop trying. Jesus says that we need, need, not just would be kind of helped by, but we need a living connection with him in order to bear fruit. What is that fruit? Well, fruit is always about something that produces life beyond itself. It's not just about being filled up with goodness, although that's true. Fruit is filled with goodness. It'll provide nutrient for the seeds and so on, but it also produces life beyond itself. Fruit is the reproducing organ of a flowering plant. Relationship with Jesus, this connection with him, is essential if we're ever going to live an abundant life where there is plenty of goodness in us that also overflows to other people. Most of us, I suspect, would say that we are not living in the fullness of all of the life that we know Jesus promises. Most of us would admit, even those who've walked with the Lord for many, many years, would admit uh, that there is more, we know that there could be more fruit of many different kinds, whether that's the fruit that's described in Galatians 5, of the fruit of the Spirit, of love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, all of that character of God, we know there's a lot more of that that we need in our lives, that's for sure. Or whether it's the fruit of seeing prayers answered and people transformed, uh, marriages held together and put back together and people healed and 
(sighs) society transformed, whether it's that kind of fruit, we know, we know that there is so much more. And it would be foolish of us to read this passage, and that's very interesting, and go on without getting into this need to connect with Jesus. So, first of all, let's have a look at a few things that get in the way of us connecting to Jesus. Now, one thing we might just say is, that why do we struggle to connect to Jesus, the vine? I mean, the headline answer could simply be, well, it's sin, isn't it? And sin gets in the way, and that's true. Sin is those, it's those things that we do that are displeasing to God. That's a definition of sin, things that are displeasing to God, and they muck up the relationship that we have with him. But as we'll see in just a moment, that's not really something that really gets in the way for us as Christians, because when we come into relationship with God, he forgives our sin abundantly, extravagantly, and Jesus' death on the cross has provided for sin. So there must be some other things that are going on for us. I'd like to suggest five different wrong beliefs that keep us from remaining in the vine. And the first one is this. I hope you can read that okay. The first wrong belief is that fruitlessness is okay. It's amazing, isn't it, how um, quick we are to rationalise our fruitlessness as entirely to be expected and normal, and to look perhaps at other people around us and say, well, I've got at least as much fruit of good character in my life as the people around me. You know, we might all be toe rags, but I'm just trying to lighten things up, I'm not succeeding. Um, when I said, as soon as this came up, there was a kind of hush that came upon everyone. I assume that means that this wrong belief is widely held. <laughs> because Jesus says, what does he say? Uh, yeah, if anyone does not remain in me, where are we? There we go. No branch can bear fruit by itself. And then he says, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. The picture, I hope, is building up that he builds up here is very clear. You have a vine. Uh, once a year, you go through and do a big pruning to kind of keep it in the right shape. Uh, That's one kind of pruning. There's another kind of pruning. Once the buds start to form, you go through and pinch a number of them out so that there's not too many uh, clusters of grapes to make sure that those that form are nice and full. Uh, If, as you go through, you see that there are some branches that have no fruit on them at all, you just hoik them out and throw them on the fire. And so Jesus is saying that it really, really matters whether the action of God in our lives is in response to what fruit he sees growing in us. Fruitlessness is something that God focuses on 
and responds to. And it won't do just for us to say, well, you know, no one in the Western world really sees many people born again, so, you know, there you go. It's not, it's not okay. Uh, if we feel that we are already what we ought to be, then we will remain what we are. If we, it's a bit complicated, isn't it? There's too many we's in there. If we feel that we are what we ought to be, then we will remain what we are. We won't look for any change, and actually, we'll also judge everyone else by what we are, making ourselves and our current experience the plumb line of what should be. There was a guy called Tozer. He wrote about things like this quite a bit. And here are some of his words. Some have the attitude, Lord, I'm satisfied with my spiritual condition, and I hope one of these days you will come, and I will be taken up to meet you in the air, and I will rule over five cities. Now, so the ruling over five cities... You do need to know your Bible a bit to know what that... What's that about? Well, Jesus talks about that as a picture of governing with him for all eternity, ruling over cities. So there's a little bit of hope there for eternity. I'll be taken up to meet you in the air and rule over five cities. Tozer says, these people cannot rule over their own houses, but they expect to rule over five cities. They pray spottily and sparsely, rarely attending prayer meetings but they expect to go zooming off to the blue yonder and join the Lord in the triumph of the victorious saints. I wonder if we're not fooling ourselves. If you're in a rut, you ought to get out of it. The Lord has called us to move on. Jesus says, just connect with me. There's not a pressure put upon us to perform to bear fruit. God doesn't say, I'm really concerned about fruit, and you've got three weeks to sort it out. Now, otherwise, mm -mm. Jesus says, just connect with me, and you will begin to bear more fruit. Here's another thing, which I was just beginning to talk about a little bit already, getting out of order. But another wrong belief that I think gets in the way is when we say, I can't connect to God because of my sin and shame. Now, it is true that unconfessed sin does interrupt our connection to Jesus, but only whilst it's unconfessed. That's the whole thing about forgiveness. For the sin to just be put as far away from us as the east is from the west. All we have to do is bring it before God and say, here we are, God, this is me, this is what I've done wrong. Thank you for what you've done on the cross for me. No. Immediately, any obstacle that that sin might have presented is dealt with. Now, what that therefore means is if we feel this way, what's really going on, what's really going on is that we doubt whether God will forgive our sin and cleanse us of our shame. 
That's probably the thing that's underlying that. Because if we were convinced that as soon as I come to God, as soon as I say to him, this is where I'm at, I've done it again, this thing that I keep doing, that besets me, that is so offensive to you, God, I've done it again. If we were convinced that God was abundantly forgiving, abounding in grace, and had done everything necessary for us at the cross for that to be dealt with, we wouldn't have a problem going to God and telling him. If we hesitate to go and confess the things that have gone wrong again and again and again, it's because we just have a little niggling worry that this time round he'll hold back from forgiving us and turn into a different mood of condemnation. I'm just fed up with you. That's the umpteenth time. I said 77 times you get forgiven. I think this is 78. I've had enough. Don't come back until you've sorted it out. There's a lingering doubt in most of our minds that God's a little bit like that and that he might turn on us. There must be, if we hold back from approaching him in prayer because of a concern about our uncleanness, when he's made every provision for us. Jesus says, remain in me. Just connect, and he's made the way for us to do so. Here's another thing, is um, the belief that I'm actually okay with the natural abilities God has already given me. Now, Jesus did teach another parable about talents. And the point of it was that we should be diligent in the use of our natural abilities. But that parable of the talents is not a complete picture of the life that we lead spiritually in Christ. In that other parable, the parable of the talents, the king went away and left his servants by themselves. But that's not our experience. Jesus promised, before he ascended into heaven, I am with you. Anyone? To the end of the age. I'm with you. He's, so the parable of the talents, of being left to work things out by ourselves, whilst God watches on from a distance, is not a complete picture of the Christian life. Jesus told that parable to highlight one point, but Jesus is always with us, and he never intended for one moment to stand by, leave us without any help, and just see how we get on. I'm always with you, he said to the disciples, and here he says, remain in me. If you don't maintain this connection with me, you're going to fail. You're going to lack all of the fruit that you could have. In some countries uh, where power cuts are frequent, those who are a bit wealthier get really big batteries installed in their houses so that when the power's on, the batteries charge up. And then when the power goes, which it does with some frequency, then the computers that they're running and their lights and whatever else all can carry on running off the batteries for a certain length of time. You know, when you're in that phase of living off the batteries rather than living off the mains, you do start to 
a little bit more cautiously, you might keep the... Battery's going a bit, isn't it? And so it's getting a bit intermittent. Is this one on? Yay. Well, there you go. There are... <laughs> if you're living off the battery, you probably don't put a bar heater on or decide now's the time to cook scones with your electric oven. You're going to conserve the energy for the things that you really, really need. And when living off the deposit that God has already put in us is not the same as living out of a flow of life that comes from a direct connection to him. God doesn't just want to dollop something in us you know, in the process of our creation and then occasionally you know, at a Christian conference or in a particularly good moment, you know, live on that for a little bit and that'll be fine. Jesus says, remain in me. Maintain the connection. Connect to me. And so much more is possible. So much more is available to us. Actually, with Jesus, with this relationship with Jesus available to us at all times, it's just a bit stupid to live within our existing abilities and not to avail ourselves of all that he offers. Here's another thing. Prayer being unnecessary. I don't know whether you ever think this. I have to say, this has been something that I have had to work through myself. And maybe some of you are having to do so too. The thought pattern goes like this. Well, look, God knows everything anyway. So before I pray, he knows what I'm going to pray. So what's the point? Jesus said, when you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And I've read that over the years and thought, well, fair enough. How many, you know, what's the opposite of lots of words? Well, probably none at all. I mean, why use any, if he knows anyway... Surely I can go and do something useful instead of telling him something he already knows. He's just telling you more about me than about the scripture at this moment. But the very next thing that Jesus says, after saying your father knows what you need before you ask him, is this then is how you should pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He instructs prayer. Uh, this week, uh, our eldest daughter Amber went to stay with her grandparents, one set of grandparents for much of the week, it being half term, having spoken to them, I know, I, I already knew what she was doing this week. Uh, but the first chance I got to really talk to her was yesterday, we were driving to somewhere uh, near Bicester to see uh, Lindy Spalander. James isn't in here at the moment, I don't think. Do pray for her, she's just been in hospital having some surgery. So Amber and I were driving there with some flowers to say get better soon and let's pray for you and so on. So, but it's a bit of a journey to get there up the A34. And so what I wanted more than anything else in that little journey was for Amber to tell me what she'd been doing at her grandparents. It wasn't because I didn't know. I'd already had a fairly detailed account. 
but I wanted to hear it from her. It mattered to me. It was pleasurable to me to hear her telling me about what she'd done. It's the essence of a relationship, isn't it? That she's speaking, she knows that I've heard what matters to her and hopefully picked up that I really wanted to hear what was of interest to her. Is prayer pointless just because God knows things beforehand? Absolutely not. It's about a relationship with him. Are relationships unnecessary? Absolutely not. They are the essence of what it means to be human and to be spiritual. God seeks a relationship with us, and he says, connect with me. Here's the last thing I'm going to mention. You could probably come up with a longer list. Here's a wrong belief. The idea that to enjoy God is really self-indulgent. I don't know whether any of you feel that way. The more activist people feel, it's all very well sitting around feeling blessed up by the Lord, but I mean, it's just you're enjoying yourself and we're called to lay our lives down for the sake of others. So just stop being selfish. Go and do something useful. Maybe some of you feel that way sometimes when you see other people giving time to prayer and worship. Jesus says we must receive before we can give. We must receive before we can give. Here's another picture that might help a little bit. Um, you see, action, really useful ministry even, of a spiritual kind, whatever kind of action we're engaged with, is by its nature a seasonal thing. The connection to God is a constant thing. It's precisely like the difference between hands and heart. You use your hands sometimes to do some things, but you better hope that your heart is working all the time. If that muscle stops, you've got a problem. And whilst activity is really important, if that inner life stops, then we're in trouble. If we have to make a choice between whether we have hands that work or a heart that works, what's the right choice? God says, remain in me. So here's a few practical helps to to build on, I hope. And uh, I prefer normally just to go through a passage of scripture and explain what it means, because it's the word of God. And, you know, I'm just a bloke and I could easily make things up. And I just wanted to underline, these are some reflections from me that I hope will help this morning. Um, You could have come up with a slightly different list. And where I'm offering some practical advice this morning, do weigh it and ask God to allow those things that are from him for you this morning really to sink in. First is this. It's to do with establishing good routines. Uh, We all have daily routines, We have weekly, monthly, and annual routines. You know, Christmas keeps coming round. It's a good thing that it does. 
a rigid routine that is followed even when it's not achieving anything is a ridiculous thing to do. I mean, just to keep on doing the same thing when it no longer has purpose would be silly. But some of us go beyond that and say, actually, all kind of routine is somehow a bit unspiritual because we, we're charismatic, for goodness sake. And we know that God does unpredictable things, that he's alive and well, and we don't always know what he's going to do. And therefore, we need to be open to the fact that he might do something differently. But for some of us, that's shifted a bit further in saying, actually, we don't need any kind of routine. If you're here this morning, I suppose I'm preaching to the converted because it's a routine to be here on a Sunday morning. It's a healthy routine. In the autumn, I did an interview with a guy called Gerald Coates, who was a prophetic leader in the charismatic renewal, actually remains a prophetic leader in the charismatic renewal. And by the way, is coming here uh, on a Saturday towards the end of April for a men's day. Uh, So men, you might like to know that that's going to, it will be a day of encounter with God um, the focus of it actually will be on our identity and sexuality. But the whole thing with... I've been, try, I've been trying to work out quite what words to put in a flyer to talk about that. The reality is that with Gerald coming, you just don't quite know what's going to happen anyway, frankly. The point will be he will come with some wisdom and something on his heart in that area, but will then operate prophetically and pray for people and things will happen and shift. That's what's going to happen on that day. So he's a prophetic leader in the charismatic renewal. But he said this to me, and this is someone who's totally happy with spontaneity and maverick activity. He said this, I didn't prompt him to say this. He simply said, there is no virtue in change for change's sake. Most of life is very predictable and we want it to be. I would have to wave one of our breathe booklets. Has anyone got one to hand they can wave? There we go. I'll grab that one there. That's what we've been exploring together with, with this thing. Some of you are fed up with me waving this. Those of you that don't know what this is about, we have, since last September, been working together on establishing a daily pattern of prayer in our lives according to a pattern that's laid out in this little booklet. Very simple and straightforward and lightweight and easy to follow, but establishing a good daily routine. Uh, I think if we were to do a poll, what we'd find out is that there's a few glorious saints who've done this every day since we kicked it off, uh, that most people have done it a bit and then lapsed a bit. Uh, that is the nature of routine, isn't it? That, that healthy routines lapse. And the issue is how long will it take before you reestablish the healthy routine? That's the, actually the key factor in determining how often you read your Bible, how often you pray, how often you follow this little pattern. The key thing will be when you lapse from doing it, how long is it before you restart? So I'd just like to encourage those of you that have never come across this, grab one of these. They're lying around at the back corner, I uh, assume. that we've got hun- We just printed another 500 of these, so we've got plenty of them. 
if you've given it a bit of a go, I'd like to encourage you to establish a good routine. Jesus says, remain in me. It's a constant connection, a constant connection with him. Constancy lies the other side of regularity. Say that again. Constancy lies the other side of regularity. You don't achieve, you don't kind of bumble along and then suddenly, boom, something happens and now I'm in a completely consistent, enduring, even keel pattern of spiritual life. It doesn't work like that. If you, even people that have a tremendous moment of encounter with God, I'll tell you what the aftermath of that is like. The aftermath of that is turbulence. Get set free from all kinds of strongholds and wrong thinking and healed and whatever. You will feel turbulence in the wake of that because your emotional life has been so altered you don't know where you're at. You won't gain constancy of spiritual life any other way than by it becoming more and more regular until it becomes uh, an unconscious habit. So I'd like to encourage you as a practical thing, how do we stay connected to God? Let's establish good routines. Lent, we're in Lent, aren't we? Uh, The best thing about Lent is Shrove Tuesday, Pancake Day, clearly, Um, and then well, it's after Lent. Easter is brilliant. The in-between bit is a time of, uh, hopefully, a bit of self-examination and uh, asking God to make some change in our lives. Actually, that's really good, too. It's a time when, actually, many of us are asking God to effect some change in our lives. Many of us are fasting in different ways at this time and asking God to make some change in our lives. So it's a great time for you to not only be trying to establish routines, good routines in your life, but if you talk to two, well, you wouldn't have to talk to more than a couple of people here this morning before finding someone else, I am sure, who's actually in the same kind of process at this time, and you'd find encouragement in that. Our middle daughter, Lois, has given up chocolate for Lent at her own initiative, She's trying to make sure that our three-year-old gives it up as well, which is, which is less effective, I have to say. Establish some good routines. Here's another thing. Overcoming distractions. I thought it would be helpful to talk a little bit about distractions because the routine focuses on the positive thing that we do to approach God regularly But then what happens is whenever we're at all close to prayer, any kind of communion with God, we get distracted by all sorts of things. Different things will distract different ones of us. Um, We can go to the effort of finding a quiet place, turning off a mobile phone, making sure that we are free from noise and interruption. But you know what happens then is we find that we have carried plenty of distractions with us in our minds and hearts. There is no place that we can go to to escape from distraction because much of it is to do with our internal anxiety and worries. So it's not enough 
for, I mean, it's, it's good for us to make an effort to avoid distractions, to put ourselves in a place where we avoid distractions in order to help our prayer. But it's not enough. Distraction will still come to us. And so what we need is to know how to deal with distractions when they come. We will be distracted in our prayer life. What do we do when those distractions come and take our attention away from the Lord? Here's a few tips. One thing that is tremendously helpful to many people is to make sure you have a notepad with you. And when an anxious thought comes to mind, you're trying to pray, but some other thought comes in, it's really helpful just to write it down knowing that you've logged that as an anxiety and that you can return to that to deal with it later. Really, really simple. Uh, I would personally find that in my times of prayer, uh, I come away with two different things. One is a renewed communion with God. The other is a list of things to do. Because as I pray, I find all kinds of things, oh, I should have done that. Oh, I ought to talk to that person. Oh, I need to have a think about that. Those things come to mind. By writing them down, I can put them to one side. It's not a time of prayer that's free of distraction, but it's one in which the distractions are kept to a minimum and quickly put to one side. Actually, I think sometimes what I feel is a distraction is the Lord bringing things up to mind whilst I'm in his presence anyway. But if I want to pursue intimacy with him, I need to be able to put those practical concerns to one side. Here's another top tip. It's a little bit more costly, I'm afraid. It is give a longer period of time to prayer. Because what you'll find is that the longer you spend in prayer, the more those distractions subside. There's only so many anxieties in the human heart. And if you give long enough in a time of prayer, eventually you'll stop having anything else to write down. There won't be anything else that comes up to distract you in the same way. When we pray, there is an ebb and flow in our communion with God. If I take a day retreat and go somewhere for a day to pray, let me be clear, I do not spend six hours or eight hours or whatever it is praying in one long go. And I don't think anyone does. What happens is that you have an hour or so perhaps of praying and then you're actually a bit tired and maybe just need to go for a walk and not think about anything for three quarters of an hour and come back and pray again, maybe have a little bit of a nap. Certainly if I take a day retreat after lunch is nap time. That's the reality of a day's prayer retreat. There's not a... Con- and it, see, if we think, we hear of people, you know, this great saint of God used to spend three hours a day in, you know, each morning in prayer. I need to be careful not to make other people look at, just, you know, be as rubbish spiritually as I am. But I've spoken to quite a lot of people about prayer. And I think the constant experience that people have is times of prayer, they ebb and flow. In a, in a longer period of time, and it's the same in our worship together, you may occasionally get a time where you're lost in 
you know, wonder, love, and praise for an hour of worship. But normally there's some point in which you think, oh, I do need to go to the loo. Or, oh, I'm just a bit tired. I just need to sit down. I just need to disengage for a minute. That, that's the reality of being human. And certainly if you take a longer period than an hour, then those things become even more a part of what that time of prayer is all about. But if you take longer, let me put it a different way. If I take 10 minutes to pray, it would be quite easy for seven of those minutes to be filled with distraction. If I take half an hour to pray, it would be quite easy for 15 of those minutes to be filled with distraction. If I take two hours to pray, maybe half an hour is filled with distraction. I'm getting a lot. The longer I spend, the more pure my communion with God will become. I encourage you to take some longer periods of time. Uh, Another thing which works on the same basis is just pray more often. That helps. It's a little bit like the routine thing. But in terms of the distractions that arise, if we've put something sort of to bed in prayer the day before, it won't have the same impact on us when we pray again the next day. If we leave it another six weeks before we pray, it probably will be just as powerful in its distraction there's a few tips. Here's the last thing. Here we go. Praying in tongues. I'd like to suggest to you that speaking in tongues is of critical importance in remaining connected to Jesus. The pendulum swings in many areas life. This is one where the pendulum, I think, has swung. Uh, In the early days of the Pentecostal movement in the early 20th century, the theology was, if you don't speak in tongues, you ain't a proper Christian. And there was this huge focus on getting every believer to be filled with the Spirit, which meant we could hear you speaking in tongues. And I have to say, I don't know whether you've ever met any of these people. I've spoken to a number of people over the years who have faked speaking in tongues in order to fit into a church that operates that way. Yeah, it's a few nods. So unsurprisingly, the pendulum swings away from that. So it's, it's not that important. You don't have to speak in tongues. It's a gift that God gives and not everyone gets it and it's, you know. Don't worry about it so much. Biblically, the key passage is in 1 Corinthians 14. And there Paul says a number of things. He says, eagerly desire spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 1, especially the gift of prophecy. And what he does through this chapter is talk about the gift of tongues and compare it to the gift of prophecy and his Main point is prophecy is better in a congregational meeting than tongues because people understand prophecy and that's really good. That's his main point. And as the pendulum has swung that way, tongues isn't that important, this passage has this main point, which is prophecy is the thing that really matters. And it's sometimes given people encouragement just to let the whole thing about speaking in tongues sort of drift away as if it were unimportant. But in the same passage, Paul says, verse 5, 
I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. And where in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, there's all these different spiritual gifts. Someone has the gift of uh, message of wisdom. Someone has the gift of faith. Someone else has a gift of miraculous power. Someone else has the gift of speaking in tongues. That passage does not teach us that some people get one kind of gift and some people get another. That's not what's going on there. What Paul is rather saying is that there's just a whole load of different stuff going on, and it's all the same spirit. So stop being competitive and so on, and just recognize that it's one spirit who's at work in diverse ways. One of the plumb lines that is very helpful for us is that when we read in the book of Acts, what happened when people were filled with a spirit, it doesn't always give a complete description. But when it does describe what was actually happening again and again, it says that when the spirit came, people began to speak in tongues. I'd like to suggest to you that the pendulum has swung too far towards being relaxed about it as if it didn't matter. It does. It's a promise from God that he will send us his spirit and it is most frequently seen that when he sends his spirit, people do speak in tongues. Let me put it a different way. because Some of you will be starting to feel a bit of pressure at this point. I don't. What does that say about me spiritually? I'd just like to encourage you to stop thinking about yourself quite so much, first of all, and to think a little bit more about God and what he's like. Because he's a generous giver. Again, Chris was reading, we heard from the Psalm 139 as well as Stuart read, God's gracious and his love endures. So there's a gift that's good for us, speaking in tongues, speaking in other languages. As the Spirit it's a good gift. The scripture says, eagerly desire spiritual gifts. To whom are we coming when we ask for this gift? Are we coming to a mean, stingy father? No. We're coming to a good and generous God who loves, just loves to give things. And that ought to encourage us, whatever our experience has been so far, to come back to him again and say, God, I'd just love to receive this gift, please. Sometimes people get a little bit confused by the mismatch between acts and current church experience. In acts, the spirit comes, they speak in other languages, and they're speaking all the different languages of the empire. It seems like it's a gift given for mission. You come here on a Sunday morning, you hear someone speaking in tongues. I don't got a clue what they're saying and nor is anyone else. And sometimes it doesn't necessarily sound very much like a language either. Sometimes what people say sounds more like it's just re- repetitive. Something doesn't, it's hard, it doesn't sound like language as we're used to, to, to it. And actually, as lingu- linguists would define language. We don't need to be worried by that. In the area of healing, we've got our heads screwed on well, I think. If someone said, there's a, there's a continuum of sorts, isn't there, in healing, which goes from, someone's prayed for me and my headache is slightly better, or at least it was for half an hour. It's not the most glorious healing that's ever been testified to, but we can still say, thank you, Lord. 
And then, you know, there are other things, you know, I've been healed of, you know, my bad back, I've been healed of my diabetes, cancer, this person was raised from the dead. And that's probably the end of the continuum that comes back over here somewhere. And we understand that, don't we? And our experience isn't all that we know God does, but we value it. And the scripture says not to despise the day of small beginnings. So we are thankful for what we've got and we pray for more. The same is true with the gift of tongues. If you've asked God to give you the gift of tongues and the only word you've got is Shabba, you're probably in common with several million people around the world. No, no. Then um, the right thing to do is to thank God with faith for what he's done and pray for more, not to despise the day of small things. Is it, there is more. And if you've got something that feels like you're not, is it really a language? I don't feel free to express myself in this. Pray for more. God will give you a fully functioning language. And that beyond that, that you know, he gives with abundance. It's different languages for different kinds of prayer. And we do sometimes, just as we sometimes hear stories of people being raised from the dead through prayer in Jesus' name, we do have stories of people speaking in tongues and it turning out to be another language. Many of you know the story. And the reason we don't hear it so often is we're not in the habit, as the early church did on the day of Pentecost, of all of us going out as a big crowd, all speaking different languages, into a multi-ethnic public place. Because that really does increase the likelihood of someone spotting the language, doesn't it? Maybe if we did this, what are you doing this afternoon? Um, so I don't think we should be too worried about that. Mary Norwich, the story many of you will know, is a um, what Jeff and Mary were in the church here. They live in Whitney now. They were in India doing a seminar on spiritual gifts at a church camp in India, in Pune. And there were a few non-Christians. There some non-Christians from Iran were there. And just to try and help people understand what this gift was like and to demystify it, Mary just stood up and just said something in tongues and sat down again. And at the end, these guys from Iran came and said, so how did you know our dialect of Farsi? So that, that does happen. God is alive and well. And we shouldn't despise the day of small things. I need to conclude. Jesus says, just connect with me. In the vine, we as branches live more purely. We fall more rarely. We recover more promptly. Advance more surely. Receive more graces. And rest more serenely. I'm going to break bread together. I'm going to hand over to Keith. And here, in breaking bread, is another means that God has given us to reconnect with him.